you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings big science from the small island. The show is proudly recorded in Tasmania and supported by Edge Radio. I'd like to begin the show with acknowledgement of country. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we are all gathering today, the Palawa people. Today we are meeting across Lutruwita, Tasmania, Aboriginal land, sea and waterways online. On behalf of everyone, I would like to pay my respects to the elders past and present as well as the Tasmanian Aboriginal community who continue to care for country. I recognise a history of truth which acknowledges the impacts of invasion upon Aboriginal people resulting in the removal from the lands. I stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history and a continued effort to fight for Aboriginal justice and rights paving the way for strong future. Hi, I'm Zoe and I'm joined with Wee Lin and Darcy and we are on the line with Carly Noon. Do you want to introduce yourself, Carly? Hi, everyone. Yama. My name is Carly, as mentioned. Uh, I am a Gamilaroi woman. Uh, that means I come from Gamilaroi country, which is uh, northern New South Wales, so a fair bit away from um, where you all are today. <laughs> On a completely separate island, actually. <laughs> um, so I have a big passion for math and physics and science um, and also sharing my love for that and sharing the knowledge that I've been able to uh, obtain over the past few years um, by studying some different degrees. So um, I have a combined Bachelor of Maths where I majored in um, a field called Pure Maths and a Bachelor of Physics. That took me uh, into another degree, which was a Master's of Astronomy and Astrophysics, where I got to research uh, the Milky Way galaxy, and I was really asking questions um, that were concerned about the evolution of the galaxy. So what parts go into making a galaxy? What is it made up of? And what does it need to continue to um, survive and keep making stars? And my other passion is talking to people and, um, you know, like I am today and just sharing um, my excitement and love for the mysteries of the universe. Thank you for that, Carly. I have a couple of questions for you. So my first one is, what is the solar system? What is the solar system? That is a fantastic question. So the solar system is where we currently live. If we zoomed out a lot, uh, we would be able to see um, Earth. And then if we zoomed out even more, we'd be able to see uh, the moon orbiting Earth. If we zoomed out even more, you might be able to see some distant planets. Um, so you might be able to see Venus. You might be able to see Mars. Um, zoom out even more and you might be able to see the entire solar system, which is comprised of all of the planets, the big, um, the big eight planets, uh, and also some, some smaller dwarf planets like Pluto, and it of course houses our sun. Now, 
literally everything in our solar system uh, revolves around the sun and that's really where everything in our solar system came from. So when the sun first started to form, it essentially was just a cloud, like a really dense cloud. And then it got so dense that it went through a process. Uh, it essentially collapsed under gravity, is what we call it, because it's so dense. And that's how the, the core, the, the sun or the star, uh, is first formed. And then it goes through lots of um, really big changes really rapidly. And one, a part of that process is a part in, in the sun's evolution where it ends up just spewing out heaps and heaps of matter uh, in its surrounding environment. And all these, this matter, all these different molecules um, get spread out surrounding that star. And eventually um, that, that matter starts to form a thin disk um, and it also starts to rotate, and this is due to some some laws that we have. The universe has to abide by laws. One of these laws is called conservation of angular momentum, um, and that's essentially the the matter is in a in a situation where or the star itself is in a situation where it just has to get rid of a lot of mass, and it's thrown out with a huge amount of velocity or speed. Um, and so this is just a, a situation that kind of occurs. Eventually, as it's starting to rotate and as it's starting to move and flatten out, all that matter starts to bump into each other um, and hit, hit each other. And eventually, it goes through this process for many, many millions of years. Um, and sometimes when these, um, these, these bits of matter run into each other, they uh, they stick to each other, and we use this word called amalgamate. So um, these bits of matter they're really starting to form into like little bits of rock now, and these rocks start to um, form into bigger rocks when they crash into each other, um, and then eventually over time they get bigger and bigger, and if we keep going for millions of years, we get something like our solar system. Are other solar systems different to ours? Oh, this is a really cool question. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So if we think about all the stars in the sky, so we can see uh, it depends where you are and it depends on how much uh, light pollution and how much access uh, to the stars you have. But, you know, we can see a few thousand stars in our night sky. Every single one of those stars went through this process where it had to just spew out a heap of material when it was forming. And so all of that material eventually um, either has or will go on to produce um, solid, uh, I guess, like solid uh, forms um, and also not solid forms. So if we think about our galaxy, uh, sorry, our solar system, not every planet in our solar system is Solid. If we think about Jupiter, it's a gas planet, a gas giant. You could theoretically just fly all the way through Jupiter um, and not run into anything solid. So there are solar systems that are similar. You know that they all kind of come from the same processes. Um, so there are definitely similarities there, uh, but there can be huge differences in the resulting planets. 
So I think at the moment we know of around 5,000 planets. It might be a bit higher than that now. Um, probably about six to 7,000 now. Um, there's a lot of diversity in those, in those planets. They could be solar, they could be gas, um, they could be entirely ocean, they could be entirely rock, um, there could be not many planets, there might only be three, there might be lots of planets, um, in the solar system. So, and, oh, some really cool solar systems not only have one star, but they can have two stars, but they can have three stars, they can have multiple stars, um, or multiple suns, some planets can have multiple moons. So yeah, even even just looking at our very own solar system, there's so much diversity in planets, what a planet could look like. Um, so if we think about our solar system, there's so many different versions of what that could look like. We'll just have to keep looking to uh <laughs> to see all the different types that are out there. Do we look at other solar systems? If we do, why? Oh, awesome question. Asking why is always a really good question. Um, yeah, we definitely do look at other solar systems. And it's really, you know, why do we do anything? Because we want to know more. We want to understand things. We want to know how things work. And by looking out, we're really getting an understanding of where we come from or how we came to be here. Um, so that's really, you know, I, I feel like that could really be said for any science, you know, or any, any form of research. Um, we do it so we can, we can try and understand things a little bit, bit clearer. Um, when we do look out, it's been really, really difficult to discover planets. Uh, in fact, I think the majority of uh, planets that have been discovered have been discovered in the past five years or so. It's been really, really recent. Um, before <laughs> uh, one of the instruments, Kepler, who discovered thousands of planets, before that we only had like a few hundreds. Like we didn't have that many planets before um, this this re more recent instrument, Kepler. So. It's a really new field of study. Uh, you know, when you think about astronomy, uh, the field of astronomy has been uh, going on for many years, depending how you look at it. You know, the modern version of astronomy has been going for, uh, let's say, 2,000 years. Um, but, you know, people have been studying the sky for tens of thousands of years, way longer than that. Um, so when you consider, you know, we've only really been learning about planets in the past five years <laughs> and really understanding what, um, you know, the scope of planets that are out there, it really tells us about the universe, tells us a lot about what's possible out there, what can exist out there. Um, and, you know, maybe one day space travel might be slightly easier and we might find an awesome planet that just has everything we could ever hope for and maybe we could travel there one day. Okay, thank you, Carly. We hope you're enjoying the show. Stay with us for more. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, Youth Takeover with Zoe, Whelan and Darcy.
You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Darcy and I'm joined by Huilin and Zoe. Today we are talking about astrophysics with Carly Noon. So my first question is, can we live in space? Like, could we live like an in- like our entire lifetime in space? Well, it really depends on what your definition of space is. You know, you could say that we are living in space. Like, Earth does exist in an environment somewhere. Um, and it is floating in outer space somewhere. So, yeah, we can totally live in space. Um, if you're thinking space is off the planet, um, if and the question is, you know, can we live not on a planet? Um, the answer is kind of not really. Like, if we had, like, amazing spacesuits that could regulate the like oxygen levels and the nitrogen levels and but like even then even if we had like good air and like an infinite food supply and infinite water our bodies um like our actual physical structures our bone structures are so dependent on experiencing the gravity that we experience on earth um, you know, our, our bones and our, our entire body evolved experiencing the level of gravity that we, we currently experience here on Earth. So when you take our bodies outside of that, they kind of freak out um, and don't really know how to, like, hold themselves up anymore because they're not experiencing um, that gravity anymore or that same amount of gravity anymore. Um, so, you know, maybe it'll be possible one day, but there's just so much you have to consider and you have to try and mimic. Um, you would basically have to try and mimic Earth. Um, but, you know, we have Earth, so why would you <laughs> try and do that? Could bacteria blood cell, and blood cells survive in space? So bacteria is an interesting one. Really, when we think about life in general, we don't, we don't really know much about it in terms of uh, the extremes, right? We don't really understand what type of life can form in extreme conditions. Um, so bacteria could possibly survive in outer space. It might not need things that, um, say, complex life forms need. So maybe bacteria... Uh, but anything a little bit more complex than that, I, I guess I just have to say, like, we don't really know. Like, we haven't seen it. Uh, you know, we've been looking, and and to, to be fair, we're very tiny compared to the universe, the observable universe. Um, so we've only seen a very small portion of the observable universe. Uh, but so far in, in our research, and in our scientific endeavours, we haven't seen um, a type of life or a form of life that could really um, survive in such an sh- extreme uh, environment, such as uh, in outer space. How long could a rocket travel through space? I would say that depends on the fuel source you have. So using you know, typical um, combustion engines, so combustion engines like our cars, uh, most of our cars, not not considering electric cars, of course. So if we think about our um, non-electric cars, 
uh, return the key and in the engine that uh, creates a spark in a chamber and that chamber is filled with uh, vapour, flammable vapour that it takes from the petrol that we put into it and that flammable vapour uh, explodes basically. When we turn our key, we're essentially creating an explosion within our, our engine. And so if we use that type of engine on a rocket, it, which, you know, we, we typically do, it takes a lot of fuel, lots and lots and lots of fuel, um, in order to get a really heavy rocket, um, into outer space and, and outside of Earth's atmosphere and Earth's orbit. So it's just, you know, if we're going by that type of technology and that type of engine, you can't go very far. Um, it, it's basically limited by how much you can take on the rocket, how much you can physically hold and store. Um, but it's, it's basically not very far at all. And so that's why people are starting to look at different types of engines. So there's um, propulsion engines that are happening. Um, there's uh, these really cool types of satellites that people are trying to get um, up off the ground and they essentially use uh, solar panels. They, they have solar panels on them, they're solar powered and they're just kind of, their intention is for them to just basically glide through space um, being powered by these solar panels. Um, and that is uh, a really sustainable way to move things. Um, you know, we know that there is some amount of light in space, um, at least in our immediate surroundings. So that's one resource that we can kind of depend on that's out there. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, a light source is able to give it enough um, initial power to keep it gliding for a really long time. That's the hope in this, this technology. Um, you know, whether that, that actually happens in reality, um, that's yet to be seen. But yeah, I, I guess the answer is we can't go very far with our current technology. We can't really go any further than say, um, you know, if we're transporting people, we, we really can't go further than, um, the moon really, or we haven't at least. Um, if we're talking about satellites, you know, maybe to the edges of our solar system, but not really much further than that. Thank you, Carly. We hope that you are enjoying the show. Stay with us for more. You're listening to That's What I Call Science Youth Takeover with Darcy, Whelan and Zoe. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Huilin and I'm joined by Zoe and Darcy. Today we've been talking about astrophysics and we're about to have a look at what all this means for the future. What's the difference between Indigenous people looking at the sky and other people looking at the sky? Oh, that's a cool question. So I guess when when we think about it in the Australian perspective, um, Aboriginal Australians... Uh, have been here for a very long time. Um, in fact, they've uh, been the longest existing culture um, that that we know of on on Earth, at least. Um, and 
the history of Indigenous people uh, on this continent and, um, of course, you know, the islands where you guys live and, of course, the, the islands um, in North Australia, um, the Torres Strait Islands and the islands of um, Darwin as well in Arnhem Land. Um, has essentially been occupied by Indigenous people for at least 60,000 years. Um, but that, you know, it could be longer than that, it could be shorter than that. Um, but it's pretty likely that it's, it's probably at least that or longer. Um, and so when you think about, you know, the longest existing culture, um, of all time uh, on Earth, um, you know that's that's a lot of stargazing, and that's a lot of asking questions and asking why. Um, you know why do things work like this? Why is this happening? Um, and so, really, that's why it's different when we're talking about Indigenous knowledge. Um, and, and, you know, in the Australian context, uh, it's, it's different because it's, it's really old. Um, the techniques are different. Uh, and we know, you know, the more data you have, the better, uh, the better idea you have of, of what's happening. And so, you know, we have 60,000 years at least of data. Um, so that really, you know, informs how we view the world. Um, and I think for that reason, Indigenous people generally view the world a little bit differently um, to non-Indigenous people. And that's, that's just through, you know, practices and, and knowledge and traditions that have been handed down um, over, over hundreds and thousands of generations. So typically, um, the techniques and the ways of doing things are different. Uh, and this is general um, for for a lot of Indigenous people across the world. Uh, it's it's typically different because they're largely considered to be uh, oral uh, people, oral cultures. Uh, so that means that they transfer knowledge through uh, spoken word and through art and song and dance. Whereas if we think about today how we get our information and how um, how we learn, it's usually through the written um, text, um, you know, whether that's on a chalkboard, whether that's in a book or whether that's on Google. Um, you know, that's, that's our standard form of, of transmitting information through the written word. And just inherently um, by doing these things differently, uh, we get different types of knowledge and we have a different, we get different ways of understanding how things work. So, uh, I think it's a combination of, um, you know, the, the history and the continuous culture that we, we're lucky to have here, um, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also just by, by looking at the world differently and doing things a little bit differently. Is the earth going to become extinct before the human race? Well, not really. The Earth will be here for, for many, many thousands of years in the future, probably millions of years. The Earth probably won't completely cease to exist 
uh, until our star goes supernova. Um, and that's, that's a pretty, that's, you know, a few million years away. So the Earth itself, the, the physical structure of the Earth will probably be here for, for many million years to come. Uh, whereas humanity and life itself, life is really fragile. I think, um, we can often find ourselves in this false sense of security, um, in our existence here on Earth. You know, for a number of reasons, because, you know, we have things like homes that protect us and, um, you know, we're, we're typically seen as being back on top of the food chain. Um, but really life is, is super fragile and we know this because we've seen, uh, we've seen Earth go through, um, several mass extinctions throughout its history. And that essentially means, you know, the life on Earth is uh, extinct, or a lot of the life on Earth goes extinct, uh, and that's kind of what we're seeing now. We're seeing a lot of extinction um, in a lot of our our animals and in our ecosystems. Um, so you know, the Earth will continue to go on. It will continue to have to function um, as a planet, uh, but the life on the surface of of the planet, that will change and that will evolve and that that will change in, in many, many different ways before the Earth, uh, before the Earth dies. What would humanity bring to a new planet? Um, that's a great question. I think that really comes back to, you know, what, what does it mean to be human? Um, what's important to us as humanity? Um, you know, if you were to ask Indigenous people this, uh, <laughs> the answer would, would be really different to a non-Indigenous person. And I think, you know, they would probably be concerned with things like animals and water and nature um, and, you know, a really comprehensive view of what's important, what do we need, what, um, you know, what's important to us. Um, but, you know... It could be things to continue to pass down our culture um, as humans. It could be, uh, so you know, it could be uh, movies, it could be um, music, um, it could be games, um, you know, things that can continue our knowledge. So things like books, devices that can transfer that knowledge. And then probably a group of people that are representative of humans. I would imagine if we're going to a new planet, you would want, you know, as many people represented in that as, as possible. Thank you, Carly. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Science, the youth takeover. We loved bringing you the science-related content and hoped you enjoyed the show. Like and subscribe to That's What I Call Science wherever you get your podcast. And to help the team reach more people, leave a review of your favourite episode. Thank you. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.